This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Let's pray before we go to God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, we pray that you would uh, bless this feast of your Word uh, to fill our souls, that you would draw us and convict us and fill us with your truth, that we might see you and our Savior Jesus Christ in a, in a more powerful, merciful, gracious way. Father, it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. As we uh, continue our series looking at the small books of the Bible, we're going to be in Obadiah. Yes, that is a book in your Bible. If you want to start heading there, don't be afraid to use your concordance. If you want to, you can open your Bibles to the middle and start heading to your right. If you hit Jonah or Micah or Hosea or Habakkuk, you've gone too far. Now, the interesting thing, while you're turning there, about Obadiah is that it is literally about a millennium's-old grudge. You see, back then, being the firstborn child meant something. The firstborn was the one who inherited the father's estate, the father's legacy, carried on the legacy of the family. That was a very important thing for the firstborn to do. But more than a thousand years before Obadiah was written, there were twin brothers named Esau and Jacob, where God decided to reverse this order. You can read this story in Genesis chapter 25 through 33 if you like, but you see the Bible is very clear that before they were even born, God decided that the promises that He had made to Abraham, their grandfather, promises for a, a people, a nation, and for, for, uh, that they would have a king that would bless, and, and more importantly, promises for a land. God, God made it very clear that those promises that He made to, to Abraham would come through the younger brother, Jacob, instead of the older brother, Esau. Very unusual. And to make things worse, Esau was like the perfect prototype older child. He was manly, he was outgoing, he was a hunter, he was an outdoorsman. I mean, he fit the bill for an older, older brother. And Jacob was the exact opposite. He was a mama's boy. He was sneaky. He wanted to stay home and clean the house and cook. Think of, if you know what I'm talking about, think of Loki. Ask somebody who laughed if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yet God decided that His promises would come through the line of Jacob and not Esau. Anyway, this rivalry came to a head when their father Isaac was about to die. You see, by the end of his life, Isaac was blind, but he called in his sons uh, uh, one at a time to give them their blessing. But when he called Esau in to give him the older blessing, Jacob not trusting in God's promises, let's say it that way. He thought he needed to do it himself. Jacob um, covered his exposed parts in, in goat's fur to trick his blind dad that he was actually the, the older hairy brother Esau. And Isaac blessed Jacob with the blessing 
for the eldest son. And then like any good story, a few moments later, Esau walked in. He said, all right, Dad, I'm ready for my blessing. And Isaac was like, I already gave you your blessing. And Esau said, no, you didn't. By the time they figured this out, Isaac was like, sorry, Esau, I can't take it back. Jacob gets the blessing. And from then on, even though God had said long before that this was how it's going to happen, that, that this is how the promises he made to their grandfather Abraham, that they would come through Jacob. Even though God said all that long before, Esau thought he had been cheated, that Jacob had, had stolen what belonged to him. So fast forward several years, and, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And he had 12 sons. Israel had 12 sons. That's why Jacob's line is called the Israelites, because he had the 12 sons who headed the 12 tribes of Israel. But Esau, being this big, hairy redhead, his name was Edom, which literally means red. So his line, his nation, became the Edomites, or literally the Reds. And this grudge, a grudge that make the Hatfields and McCoys look like friends, was passed down from generation to generation for a thousand years. The Edomites always thought that Israel had what was theirs. All of Israel's prosperity, all of their fertility, all the land that they had, all the blessings that they had, the Edomites thought Israel had stolen that from them. Until one day, Someone else came in and did what Edom always wished they could do, but never could. In fact, we just finished looking at the book of Jeremiah that, that talks about this event, this event. I'm talking about the Babylonians. Finally, because Israel refused to obey God, God sent in the Babylonians to conquer them and, and take them out into exile. And oh, how Edom loved that day. It was like their most hated, despised enemy was finally getting what was theirs finally getting what was coming. So with that in mind, that's where we are. Let's look at the book of Obadiah together. Obadiah beginning in verse 1. This vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have, you have no understanding." Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. 
Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. And do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it, is, it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sephard, shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So here's the, the problem that Obadiah exposes for Edom. All their anger, all their jealousy, all their resentment that they had for Israel was wrong. It took them a thousand years, but they figured out they were wrong. And their creator is telling them that they were wrong. They were wrong because they were actually angry and jealous that God had ordained His promises through Jacob. Which means all their jealousy and resentment and anger was always destined to end in one place. The same place that anyone who is against God is destined to be. Their, their attitude toward Israel and the way they acted was always destined to end in destruction. That's what I want you to think about this morning. I, I want you to, to imagine, I want you to wonder, what if God was talking to you in this passage? What if, if God was telling you that you were destined for eternal destruction? What if everything said, God said in Obadiah, He was saying to you this morning? For example, look at verses 1 through 7 again and ask yourself, what if God was telling you that you were destined to be disgraced? Now remember, Jerusalem has recently been sacked by Babylon. But, but the Lord says to Edom in verse 1, We've heard what you did, Edom, so here I come. Get ready, Edom. I'm coming to get you. Now, we don't know yet in the book of Obadiah exactly what Edom did that was so wrong, but... If you have God coming at you with His angry face on, I'm not so sure that matters in the moment. 
But look at the imagery God uses in verses 3 and 4. Because first he's talking about disgracing Edom by humiliating them. You see, Edom was located in this very rugged, mountainous region south of of Jerusalem. In fact, even though they were very close to the Mediterranean Sea, just a few miles, they actually had peaks that were in the neighborhood of 5,000 feet. So it was very steep, very rugged mountains. In other words, this made them terribly inaccessible uh, and protected from from foreign invaders. It it might not be unlike uh, our military, the issues that we faced when we fought in Afghanistan minus the advantage of the Air Force. But God tells them in verse 3, you're not safe in your lofty dwellings. I created the mountains. I'm not scared of them. And then he says in verse 4, just because you think you're untouchable, like an eagle is, it thinks it's untouchable in the air, that, that doesn't mean I can't bring you down from there. I remember once when I was young, we were at someone's house for, for dinner and my parents told me to go out back, and like I always did, I obeyed happily. But that's not the point. The point is nobody told me that these people had a great dame. And so no sooner did I step out the back door that I was kind of looking this horse with sharp teeth in the eyes. So I panicked. But luckily they had one of those old swing sets that had like the two swings on either side and then the the rungs that went across the middle, they were about five feet off the ground. So I ran across and, and, and climbed up that swing set as fast as I could, and I sat uh, on top of those rungs. The problem was, is as soon as I got up there, the dog was up there waiting for me. He just stood up and put his paws on those things, and I was still looking this dog right in the eye. Now, obviously, that dog was friendly, and I was just scared. But the point is that God is telling Edom that he's kind of like that great Dane. He's like, go hide in your mountains. I'll meet you there. But not only is Edom destined to be humbled, look at verses 5 through 7 where God says they're also destined to be pilfered. In verses 5 through 7, he's he's saying that, you know, even if thieves come and rob you, they're not going to take stuff that's not valuable. They're not going to take your toilet paper and your underwear, they only take the good stuff. But what God is saying is that that this will not be the case with you, Edom. When I'm done with you, this is going to be more like the Grinch stole Christmas. All that will be left is like nails in the wall that used to hang your pictures and a couple of hangers in, in the closet for your clothes. God's saying, I'm going to take everything from you. Everything. Again, I wonder, how would you feel if God was saying that to you this morning? What if God was saying that that you were destined to be eternally disgraced, humiliated, everything you owned pilfered? What if God looked at all your guns and all your alarms and your fences and everything else you thought made you safe And said, yeah, that ain't going to do anything to keep me from humiliating you. Or what if God looked at all of your retirement accounts and your homes and your jobs, your vehicles and everything else you thought made you worth something. 
And he said, I'm going to take everything. That's a promise. You will have nothing. What if God was saying that to you this morning? How would you feel if the creator of heaven and earth was saying the same things to you that he's saying to Edom? That because of something you did that was against his will, there was no way you could escape from being disgraced by him. But what if it didn't end there? Look again at verses 8 through 16. What if God was telling you this morning that not only are you destined to be disgraced, but you're also destined for eternal destruction? After he disgraces you, he's going to wipe you off the face of the earth. That'll be the last memory anyone has of you is humiliation and pilfering, and then you will be destroyed. He says in verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. But why? Why is that going to happen? Why is God saying all of these things? Look again at verses 10 very closely, because this is key. He says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You see, when Babylon had attacked, Edom somehow participated. Now, we don't know exactly what happened, <clears throat> Excuse me, but verse 11 gives us some, some clues so we can make an educated guess. The first half of verse 11 tells us that God is angry at them because at least some of them just stood by and let it happen. They didn't go to Israel's rescue. But the last line, this is the interesting one, the last line of verse 11 tells us that God is angry because some of them also participated in the destruction of Israel. He says, when they, that's the Babylonians, when they cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them, meaning you were right in there with them, looting and taking what was left in the wake of their destruction. And for this, God is saying, you are destined for destruction. But lest we wonder why God is being so harsh, lest we wonder what it was that Edom did, he goes on this litany in verses 12 through 14 to explain what Edom did on that day Judah was sacked. And I want you to pay close attention to the movement that God describes, both, both what they're doing and, and where they're doing it. I want you to put yourselves into the shoes of the Edomites that, that God is describing here. Notice in verse 12. He's saying, at this point, you're, you're watching from afar, you're in Edom and you're gloating over the devastation that you see taking place in the distance. And, and literally, that, that word gloating, it's, it's they're feasting their eyes, like a good meal, like, oh, finally. However, instead of, of stopping, like God says, don't do that, instead, your gloating turns into rejoicing. As now you see it get worse, you see the flames, and hear the screams rising from Jerusalem, you start rejoicing. But then look by verse 13. Now you've gone to Jerusalem. You've entered the gates. And halfway through verse 13, now as you survey this devastation close up, you begin to gloat again. Now you see exactly what happened, and you are feasting your eyes like, this is awesome. 
Until at the end of verse 13, you, 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 you stop gloating and now you start to loot all the valuables that you see lying around in the wake of this destruction. But then, maybe out of the corner of your eye, you, you, you catch a glimpse of movement, a survivor trying to hide. So in the first half of verse 14, you, you and the others that you're with stop looting and begin to chase them down and cut them off. Until by the end of verse 14, you're calling out to the Babylonians, hey, wait, you missed a few, but here, we, we chased them down and caught them for you. Here you go. Here's a few that you missed. This is what God is saying you shouldn't have done, Edom. Why? Well, look at verse 15 again. God said, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. In other words, God is saying is just like you went and drank of the destruction and, and the misery of Jerusalem, other nations are going to come and, and drink of your destruction and your misery, and you are going to drink from my cup, my cup of wrath. You're going to get as drunk on my cup of wrath as you were on all of Jerusalem's riches. So I ask you again, what if this was a promise that God was making to you this morning? That you are going to be drunk on His destruction and rejoicing and looting of you. But God's still not done. Look at verse 17 through 21 and ask yourself, in addition to all of this, what if God was telling you that you're also destined to watch as others get what you always wanted? You see, in these five verses, in verses 17 through 21, God uses the word possess eight times. In verse 17, the house of Jacob is going to possess everything they lost. But not only that, not only will they possess everything that they lost, but they will become the fire and the flame that will just burn you to nothing. You, Edom, the stubble. And because you're gone, eventually, in verse 19 and 20, from the north to the south, that's what all these cities are. From the far north to the far south, from the far east to the far west, Jacob will possess everything, including everything God just finished saying he was going to take from you. And why will they possess this? Because verse 21 says, all of it, all of everything you have, Edom, will be the kingdom of the Lord's. And I'm going to give it to the son that I said I would, Jacob. What if this was you? What if this morning God was telling you that you were destined to destruction while others were destined to have everything you ever wanted and held dear? Now, I know you're probably thinking, Grant, I've, I've never done anything close to this. I mean, I've never watched as my neighbor's house burnt down and then went in and looted all their stuff. I haven't done any of that. I'm sure that's probably true for most of you. <laughs> but here's the thing. That's not the point. What Edom did to, to Israel, what they did to Jerusalem was just an act. It was just a, just a behavior 
that flowed out of something in their heart. You see, we have to look past what Edom did to why they did it. Because not only is, is, is that what God cares about, but, but it's, it's why God is judging them. Meaning, like I said, the, the real reason Edom is being condemned goes all the way back to Esau. You see, just like their father Esau, they refused to do things God's way. Just like Esau, rather than accept that what they wanted could only come through Jacob, that they had to go through their younger brother to get what they wanted, rather than accept that, they wanted to be the heirs. They wanted everything to be theirs on their own terms. They wanted the promises that God made to Abraham, the blessings, the, the nation, and the land the security, they wanted, they wanted all of that, but without the way God said they had to get it. In other words, to put it very simply, they wanted what God had promised without God. And they think, because of Jerusalem's destruction, they think they're finally getting it, and God says, no, you're wrong. And because they still refuse to pursue God's promises the way God said it had to be, God is telling them that they are destined for eternal destruction. So what if God was saying that to you this morning? What if, what if God was telling you that because you wanted to be blessed on your own terms, you wanted all the promises of peace and prosperity and life and hope and, and, and everything that comes in the Bible, you wanted all of that, but without God. I'll do it myself, God. What if that was you and God was promising you this morning that you too were destined for eternal destruction? Because listen very closely, brothers and sisters. If we are to understand the book of Obadiah, if we are to understand this 21 verses properly, we have to understand something very, very important. We are Edom. We are Edom, each and every one of us. We're the outsiders destined for destruction because we wanted all the blessings of God without Him. Just like Edom, we're, we're on the outside looking in on God's promises. Not only denying that the only way to God's blessing is through His plan, not only are we denying that, but sure that our plan was the right way. In fact, this is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. He said, Therefore, remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's us, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Look at verse 12 one more time. We were separated from Christ, estranged from Him, apart from Him. 
We were alienated. He says we were strangers to the covenants of promise, unrecognized. Would be looked at by God and say, who are you? Which means this, when I ask you, what if God was telling you this morning that like Edom, you too were destined for eternal destruction? When I say those things, the truth is we don't really even need to try very hard. We just need to remember. It's not something that is outside the realm of our possible thinking. It's, it's who we were. Like remembering when you were a child. Remember when God said you were destined for destruction. In fact, you may still be there this morning. This morning, you still may be perhaps un- unwilling or, or, or unsure that the way God said things has to be is the way that is true. That He has established as the creator of heaven and earth. If He made it, He gets to make the rules. Maybe you're unsure that The only way to His promises is through the plan that He ordained. In other words, whether that was you or is you this morning, we are Edom in this passage. Destined for destruction, for denying and resisting the God of heaven and earth. But I want to draw your attention back to the text to one little line. One line and one verse in Obadiah. Look back at verse 15. God said, for the, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. This is the destruction. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Here's what I want you to listen to. This is the line. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. So wait a minute. God is saying that there will be some who will escape their destined destruction. How is that possible? Well, the truth is, is it's possible the same way today as it was back then. That hasn't changed at all. Because that plan that I've been talking about, God's plan that Edom denied, that that the promises and the blessings would come through Jacob, that plan has always been that escape from that destruction would come through faith. Faith that God would provide a Savior through the line of Jacob. Same now as it was back then. In fact, Paul explains this in the verses following what we just read. Let's look at them again in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 again. Therefore, remember that, that you at one time, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, Remember, you were separated and alienated and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen to what follows. But now in Christ Jesus, just as Kim read earlier this morning, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh that dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, 
thereby killing this hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, that was us, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. For through Him we both have access now in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Once we were separated from Him, but now we have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Once we were alienated and strangers to all of these promises, but now in Christ we are fellow citizens and have access to God. And once we had no hope, we were completely without God, but now in Christ we are members of His household. Brothers and sisters, in Christ and in Christ alone, your place in this book has flipped. Each one of us started as an Edomite, destined for destruction, but now in Christ, because of Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into the family that was destined to possess all of God's promises. We're no longer Edomites. We've been adopted into the Israelites. And the hostility that used to exist between us and God, just like Kim said, God is no longer at war with us. Because He has broken down that hostility between us through the only way that God has ever ordained for anyone, Jew or Gentile, to have peace with God. We have escaped our destined destruction through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that this morning? Then rejoice with me, brothers and sisters, because now you no longer have to wonder what it would be like for God to tell you that you are destined for destruction. You no longer have to worry about this. No, now we are the few that have escaped. The only thing we have to imagine is this. Now listen. The only thing we have now to imagine is not what it would be like for God to tell us that we were destined for destruction. No. The only thing we have to wonder is what it will be like for our Savior to look us in the face and say, Welcome home, my child. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come, look at what I have prepared for, for you and I to enjoy together for eternity. That's all we have to wonder about now is what that will sound like. Now maybe you're thinking, Grant, that's great. I, I do yearn for that day. But what about tomorrow? What does this look like until that day? What does being adopted into Jacob's family look like in 30 or 40 minutes when we walk out of this building? Well, first and foremost, it's very simple, brothers and sisters, it looks like worship. Back in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said that we used to be dead in our trespasses. Not mostly dead, all dead. As capable of doing anything good as a dead person is. But beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, or chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, Paul used the two best words in all of human history. Not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything good in us, 
But God, being rich in mercy, not poor, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why would He do that? So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But how is He going to do that? How is He going to show the immeasurable riches of His grace in the coming ages? Well, He says in verse 8, Because by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, brothers and sisters, these are the coming ages that Paul was talking about, which means our lives should be filled with boasting, not of ourselves, but of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us. That's worship. It should be a part of our conversations. It should be a a part of our lives. But what are those good works that Paul said that have been prepared beforehand? Well, we could go on for hours and hours. That's everything God has ever prepared for His people to do. But let me just give you one that pertains to Obadiah. You see, Paul explained elsewhere that since we have been saved from destruction, since we have been reconciled to God through Christ, since that war is no longer ongoing, he said, we have now become ambassadors for the nation of Christ, ambassadors for his kingdom into which we have been adopted. You see, this this family of Jacob is growing. God's still adopting Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, he said, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning we don't look at, at who people are right now, the, 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 the people destined for destruction. We don't look at how they are right now. Why? Because he said, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us that ministry of reconciliation. So what God started, He's, he's, he's given it to us to continue. That is in Christ, verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And, here it is again, entrusting to us that message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the message that we've been given as ambassadors. Be reconciled to God. Okay, how? Because He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you're here this morning and you don't believe, then then my plea with you is the same as it is as Paul said. I, I implore you to be reconciled to God through Christ. 
Because that's the only way that God said it can happen. Believe that Jesus became your sin so that through him you might be reconciled to God and become the righteousness of God. And why do I implore you? Why did Paul implore anyone? It's because I can guarantee you every single person in here wants you to be a part of this kingdom, this nation, to spend eternity with us in heaven. And if you already believe this morning, then, then what I would ask you is to please do two things with me. First, as I already mentioned, wonder every day, as often as you can, what it'll be like. When you get to see your Savior face to face, and He ushers you into this kingdom that He has made for us to possess, wonder what that will be like every single day. And then second, until then, let that wonder that, that hope, let that fuel a courage and a joy and a peace that, that, that is the hallmark of your life. Use that wonder to broadcast the reconciliation that you have to God in Christ like a beacon to those who still live in darkness, who are still destined to destruction. Broadcast to them that there is peace and reconciliation to be had with God through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift it is through no, no work of our own, nothing that, that we could have done, but simply, as your word says, as a gift. You have moved us from the destruction column to the life column. You have made us and grafted us into the family to whom you made all of these promises. And Father, we know that this is only through the blood of our Savior. We know that the only way that we could be moved from enemies of you to children of you is through Jesus Christ and because of His death on the cross. So, Father, it is in Him we worship You. It is through Him we hope. It is in Him we pray. Amen.